Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But here is the point also. I'm Jewish. I lost, my father's family was devastated by Hitler. So this is an issue of some sensitivity to me. So I will do everything in my power, and I hope that every member of Congress will fight not only anti-Semitism, but racism and anti-Muslim activity so that we create a non-discriminatory society. But it is not anti-Semitic to be critical of a right-wing government in Israel. That is not anti-Semitic. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And a brown voice at MSNBC will not take off the air. I'm Nick Saveri. Ooh, more on that in just a bit. Uh, Nick, you're reading into my script here. Uh, the latest on the Israel-Hamas war as violence continues to happen in this conflict. And by the way, it, using the word conflict is something that we're going to revisit as well. Uh, there's seemingly no end in sight. Plus, Nick and I are going to get into the coverage by one network to remove its Muslim anchors that draws the ire of two people on this show. So you can take a hint as to the two people. More on that in just a bit. Um, later on the program, GOP presidential candidate and businessman Ryan Binkley stops by the pod. He's going to talk about his platform and candidacy, his polling numbers as he's up around 2% in the latest poll out there in Iowa. The border, education, his economic policy, why he hasn't made the debate stage and the upcoming debate that's going to be happening on November 8th. All of that with Ryan Binkley coming up in our next segment. Really good conversation. Nick, I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. We'll tease that out. Uh, first, before I say hello to the dashing Mr. Severi, an all new episode of Back Your Play 
with Q is out there, available wherever you listen to pods or over on LeonMediaNetwork.com. Week six of the National Football League in the books. College football comebacks won by our alma mater, Rutgers. For those of you watching on YouTube, as Nick is wearing his Rutgers shirt, uh, Colorado blows a 29-point lead. All of this is broken down as Rich welcomes in uh, NFL pro football writer Lloyd Vance to break down everything that happened in the NFL and college football over the weekend. So go check out that new episode of Back Your Play with Q and also an all-new episode of the Educate US podcast. This week, my co-host Nick Saveri, Stacey Schultz, Dr. Patrice Fenton, they recap the the recent uh, series they did uh, uh, looking at school district leaders, administrators, teachers, parents, all these great conversations you guys had on the program over the last couple of weeks in this uh, real good series that you guys did. Go check out that episode that's available wherever you listen to pods over on LeonMediaNetwork.com. All right, Nick, all of that, boy, the reads for the promotional stuff. It's There's going to be some a few more things coming up soon. And a new partnership with somebody that is tailor-made for this show. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing it right now, but with everything that's going on right now, I've been getting a lot of text messages from folks that just want to talk, right? And the purpose of this show, right? We talk about certain issues that are playing out in the world of news and politics. So we're going to be announcing a new partnership that we're going to be doing soon with somebody very prominent in the space and a way you can kind of channel everything that you're going through and talk to somebody professionally. And by the way, if you want to talk to two semi-professionals and me and Nick, you can email the show. Can we please talk podcast gmail.com. Follow us across social media, YouTube, everything. Uh, hit the subscribe, leave us comments. Uh, shout out to everybody that's been texting us about our last episode. If you didn't listen to it with UCLA professor of Israel studies and author of the book, uh, the Israel Palestinian conflict, what everyone needs to know, uh, Professor Dove Waxman, great guest. Um, but I really want to shout out the people that have texted us, whether it be DM, um, you know, straight text messages, some emails that we've gotten. People really enjoyed the conversation. But the biggest thing that they enjoyed about the conversation, Nick, and this will kind of funnel into me saying hello to you, is it really centered on the same things that you and I, central core themes of our show right, wrong. This is not an R&D thing, as I like to say. It's a right, wrong thing. As my buddy Al says, I should get made onto a t-shirt and I probably will. Um, wrong. Hamas is wrong. They're a terrorist organization. They committed a terrorist act, what happened in Israel. Wrong is what's happening to the 2.2 million people that live in Gaza across 139 miles that are now being bombed with nowhere to go to and Egypt's blocking the border and they can't get out and they can't go anywhere, Right. Those things are wrong. You can condemn the violence and the response, whether it's proportional or not, that Israel is doing right now. These folks are dying in it. 2,600 or so Palestinians have died so far just in the last seven days of our taping, Nick. 1,400 people have died in Israel, not to belittle that. Like those things are wrong, but you can separate the government of Israel from what the terrorist attack that happened in Israel. And likewise, the same thing, you can separate Hamas and their terrorism versus the good people uh, of Palestine. All right, now I say hello to you. There's a lot there, Nick, a lot to digest. Um, how, how have you been? How's everything been going? I know you've gotten a few texts that you've shared with me in our in our text chain. Um, just just how you've been and, and some overall thoughts before we dive into our first segment here. Yeah, I think it's it's been an interesting swirl of emotions. Um, 
as you mentioned, you know, hearing from, you know, hearing from friends, you, you know, my co-host Stacy is one of the ones who had reached out about, you know, what she found valuable in the recent episode. Um, you know, obviously we're talking about war right now and, and always there you're talking about the human cost. Um, you, you mentioned about in Gaza, you know, 2.2 million people, at least 50% of them are children. Um, you know, over the weekend we heard that, um, families, you know, saw flyers being dropped from the heavens, being asked to move, you know, from the north of Gaza or north Gaza to the south. Um, you know, we also, th- I mean, and again, this all began with a a horrifying attack, you know, from Hamas in into Israel. And over the last week, it's been really fascinating just to see the different types of reactions that we're we're seeing. And we're going to talk about one of which in the media space, but. You and I've talked offline about, you know, it's been interesting to see so many arguments appearing on both sides of this that try to make the argument that I think Dove, Professor Waxman did a fantastic job of of trying to add nuance to this. You, you, you know, we heard a clip at the start before we got on, you know, from Senator Bernie Sanders talking about, you know, as a Jewish person that recognizing, um, you know, what potential role the prime minister of Israel is playing in this conflict. You know, there's a poll recently that, you know, I, I think of, of at least 650 people in Israel um, asked about their, their feelings of this, of this conflict right now. And at least about 80% of them lay this at the feet of the prime minister of Israel. Now compare that of course, to American response. You know, we have heard far, not that slanted, actually very much down the middle in terms of where people where people's allegiances lie how people are making sense of what's going on and i guess what i'm trying to say is that we we've seen i feel like 10 20 a generation years ago i don't think we would try to try to rationalize justify both sides of this conflict and now we're at a place where we're seeing protests you know recognizing both sides and the tragedy there is oftentimes these arguments are trying to say one side is right over the other. And I, I don't know the right from wrong here. I, I agree with you. You know, what what began as a terrorist attack and a attack and a response from a sovereign nation, all that's leading to is just continued violence and people who are not, we don't know their sympathies, who are the victims here. I said this, I texted to you this over the weekend that. You know, you'd like to think you get to a place where someone like, you know, Netanyahu, who seems as passionate, is the first one out there with a gun in the middle of the battlefield. It's like, let's just settle this the old fashioned way. But it never is. It's never the warmongers. It's never, you know, the folks behind the desk that tell troops where to go. They never do the fighting. So these are just soldiers. And, you know, it's and it's just sad. But again, the nuance of this has just been the different opinions we're seeing. And that's that's been interesting to take in sorry you're asking how i'm doing yeah i'm just sad i mean we're talking about displaced children i, I texted you earlier today about know. you know a six-year-old who a six-year-old boy had been murdered um and his mother injured both the boy had been stabbed about 26 times from the, from the report we're reading Unbelievable. Um, and the the landlord apparently had had, had shared anti-stated he stated state well i tried to sound like normal here i yelled you know anti-muslim things at the family before attacking them so even you know we're just seeing people being violated simply because of who they are and 
Yeah, this is very eerily reminiscent to other moments in history where just because of the skin color a person has, because of their religion, they become a target. And that, that's sort of the manif- that's what's manifesting from you know what's happening in, in Israel and in, and in Gaza right now. Yeah, it, it's that, that story. We posted it on our Instagram. If you don't follow us, uh, follow us. Can we please talk podcast over on on Instagram? But we posted it on our story about the six year old boy that lost his life. And the father, you know, gave a press conference and he said something. It was translated, you know, hey, I'm not a political guy and stuff like that. But, you know, I, w- I wanted to kind of give this speech, you know, because I don't, I don't want my son to die, you know, in vain. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but you can go follow us on Instagram and kind of check out the rest of it or follow PBS NewsHour that that uh, posted that on their story. Let me give you the the latest update in, in what's happening uh, in this war right now. Uh, the first thing that just broke as we were recording this, President Biden's going to be traveling to Israel this week. Then he's going to go to Jordan uh, on Wednesday later on this week and meet with both Israeli and Arab leadership um, the United States Sec- Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is already out there and he announced President Biden's travel uh, as the humanitarian situation, you know, in the Gaza Strip, it continues to grow. It's more and more dire each each and every day, uh, you know, hospitals uh, up in northern Gaza. There's another video that we posted uh, from The New York Times about uh, the hospital in northern Gaza that has a lot of people on critical life support there that the Israelis have have told people to evacuate from that area and that hospital is like, we can't evacuate. If we leave, these people in this hospital are going to die. Um, it, the IDF says that uh, in Gaza right now, Hamas has captured and is still holding on to about 200 to maybe 250 hostages from the terrorist attack that occurred um, about seven or eight days ago, depending upon when you're listening to this taping. Um, there's humanitarian groups that are trying to work with the Egyptian government right now to open up that corridor, uh, you know, and that border, excuse me, in Egypt and create a humanitarian corridor, corridor to get people out of there. You heard Nick and I already allude to this, but there's over 2 million people that live in Gaza. About 50% of them are children. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the Gaza Strip, it's about 139 square miles. Um, and the the northern part of the territory where the, the Israeli forces had already told people to evacuate that area because that's where they were going to be targeting um, the, the Hamas. Again, I don't even know how to label this. People are going to draw the ire if I say fighters, terrorist fighters, whatever you want me to say, folks, whatever verbiage, you know what I'm trying to say here. But um, they're targeting that northern part of of, of, of Gaza. And <clears throat> it's the 63rd, according to the uh, the Associated Press, 63rd most densely inhabited urban region in the world. Again, 2.2 million people, 139 square miles. For those of you thinking about this right now, my drive right now from Miami to West Palm Beach would be about 139 miles. And if you've, if you've been in Florida, in the South Florida area, it's not that far of a drive, uh, just, just as an FYI. Maybe even, maybe you go a little bit north, further north and say Jupiter, uh, for those of you that have been down here. Um, one thing I did want to mention uh, real quick before, I did want to play, actually, let me play a clip real quick from President Biden because- He's been doing, you know, pressers and stuff like that, but he recently was on a 60 minute interview, obviously being asked about this one on one setting. Take a listen to what the president said. Why do you feel so strongly about speaking to these families personally on Zoom? Because I think they have to know that the president of the United States of America cares deeply about what's happening, deeply. 
We have to communicate to the world this is critical. This is not even human behavior. It's, it's, it's pure barbarism. And we're going to do everything in our power to get them home if we can find them. So he was talking there about, obviously, there's, there's been, I think, 22, maybe up to 25 Americans that were part of the kibbutzes that got hit there and, you know, hostages taken in, people killed. I believe 25 or so were American uh, citizens or maybe dual citizens. Um, so that's what he was talking about and referencing in that interview. Again, as of this taping, folks, information so subject to change, but Hamas is continuing to launch rockets into Israel. Israel is carrying out strikes in Gaza. The Gaza Health Ministry said uh, this past week that roughly 1,800 people have been killed in the territory. That was as a couple of days ago. That number has risen since. I'm just speaking it right now. Um, Then you have the Israeli military, like I mentioned before, said that more than 1,400 people, including up to 250 soldiers, have been killed in Israel. So there's just bloodshed all over the place with respect to this conflict. Um, The State Department um, is trying to get people out of there as well, two Canadian uh, citizens as well. Uh, I'm reading this uh, according to CNN that, that two Canadians confirmed dead in the Hamas attacks as well. They were Israeli Canadians that happened to be over there uh, visiting. And this is according to the Canadian outlets, uh, CTV, which is a CNN partner up in Canada. World Health Organization on Saturday of this past weekend condemned Israel's evacuation order for 22 hospitals, like I mentioned, in northern Gaza. Over 2,000 patients are being treated there, and the World World Health Organization is urging Israeli forces to not attack the areas where those hospitals are. There is no way for these people that are on critical life support to be be taken out of there. Um, When I read you some of these numbers, you heard the president there and what he said. What are just some of your impressions beyond what you were just telling me before about kind of where we are and where this is all going to end up. Yeah, the the biggest thing I'm left with is that Hamas was able to execute such a such a coordinated attack has left a lot of people with questions. What information was out there? You know, one of the most, I think, poignant, damning, whatever you want to call it, pieces of information. And I think we may have talked about on this show or maybe United Texas about it. we we talk all the time, obviously, was the Wall Street Journal's reporting about Iran's involvement. Over the weekend, a report came out that talked about the difficulty of the decision to release that story, that internally at the Wall Street Journal, there were questions about, do we have enough information to go on? Because sources you know, within these different government bodies are, are saying that Iran is aware of this. And on the other side, it's, well, are we sure? I bring this up because we're in this really precarious situation right now where Information coming from that part of the world is going to be hard to parse in terms of what's factual, what seems politically motivated. And as news consumers in the U.S., we have to be very mindful of what information are we getting and what to do with it. Because once that came out, immediately all of us started to connect the dots. You know, why would Iran do this? How would Iran have gotten the information? Does this have anything to do with Security documents and Mar-a-Lago, all kinds of stuff was getting put out there. We don't know. All we know, obviously, is as as Mike had put it, the statistics. That's that's all. That's the hard fact right now. 
and you're simply left with why. And if, and if for anyone that's listening to the show or watching the show, and if you are, thank you, you know, looking at us for answers to help connect the dots, I have to kind of shrug my shoulders because I think the information is coming in, but we are not fully knowledgeable of this. But all I would implore anyone to do is simply ask yourself why and how. This is not a country in Israel that is, considering the place of the world that they are in, where they've always had to be knowledgeable of not being on the, the friendliest of terms with some of their neighbors, to go from being well-versed in how your border operates and security protocols to getting blindsided by an organization you are well aware does not want you in that part of the world is baffling. And I imagine the FBI, Central Intelligence, so many Interpol, I mean, all of these organizations are probably all asking themselves the same question and trying to verify where this is coming from. Um, and I, that's the one I've been left with the most is just sitting with that. And everyone I've talked to about this, it's the, it's the thing that keeps really kind of keeps me up at night, to be honest, is, you know, where, how did this come about? It's, it's a question that uh, we're going to have somebody coming on uh, in the coming weeks, that former CIA analyst and former FBI agent as well, talk a little bit more about that in depth. I did want to pivot real quick. We, were, we just alluded to two things that I wanted to get to before we go to the break and, and, and uh, our interview with Ryan Binkley. And we asked him about, you know, uh, everything that's happened, you know, with the attacks as well and his a response to a good question you asked him, Nick, about a potential two-state solution. But the media coverage in all of this, um, something that's been lost in the shuffle, or maybe it hasn't, you know, again, who knows how many people are on social media following this on Twitter, but two friends of ours, Nick, that have been on this show, Eamon Mohideen and Mehdi Hassan, uh, both of them have uh, prominent shows for MSNBC on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday for Eamon uh, between 8 to 10 p.m., and then Mehdi Hassan has his show Sunday nights at eight o'clock. And there's been reports from a couple different uh, outlets that the network took Mehdi and Eamon's shows off of the air over the last uh, couple of weekends in terms of coverage of this. They've kept them on as analysts or they've put them in other segments and other programming, even as I'm recording this episode right now, as we're recording this right now, excuse me, Mehdi just appeared on Jory Reid's program but again as a panelist just for like a seven eight minute segment to talk about that six-year-old boy that 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 lost his life that you were mentioning before um and i posted something on our instagram story about the dangerous precedent this sense right because Eamon is an american egyptian journalist he's a veteran nbc news correspondent Mehdi Hassan has covered this conflict for forever when he was at al jazeera uh, obviously, he's of Muslim descent. And then Ali Velshi has a popular show as well on Saturdays and and Sundays as well at 8 a.m. And the two of them have the three of them, excuse me, have kind of not been on the network as much. And, you know, uh, uh, MSNBC is saying that, no, you know, we haven't taken them off. But when you go to their show slots, they're not on the air. The New York Post editorial board wrote a piece that I want to read for you a little bit here, Nick, because it says, and again, New York Post, so take it with a grain of salt, but MSNBC's punishment for pro-Hamas propaganda. The ratings for MSNBC have dipped 33% uh, of its primetime viewers after the attacks that happened in Israel by Hamas 
And Fox has seen an increase in viewership, 42% as a massive jump in their total. And the biggest thing is because they say, this is according to the New York Post editorial board, that MSNBC, uh, and I used the word fighters before, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, but uh, they are, MSNBC was not labeling Hamas as terrorists uh, in some of their reporting. And the BBC News has been getting hit with some of this stuff as well. And then it points to some of the things that Eamon, Matty, and Ali have said on air in response to the conflict overall, the treatment of Palestinians uh, that are living in Gaza. Like I mentioned, 2.2 million folks that live there, 139 square miles, only 20,000 or so have work permits to be able to cross the border and actually work in Israel. Again, Nick, I've made this analogy to other people. If I had $2.2 million right now, Nick, and I gave you 20 grand of it, you'd be looking at me sideways saying, whoa, that's very, <laughs> that's inadequate. And I need more of that. So 2.2 million people and only 20,000 of them actually have permits to be able to leave. And they're not able to travel freely because of, like we mentioned before, the border with Egypt, they're not able to leave in, in that direction. Um, so Mehdi, Eamon, and Ali, when they're doing their coverage, have talked about these issues as well, in addition to condemning the violence that Hamas carried out in Israel. To give you an example, I want to play a clip from when Eamon was on Ali's show and they were assessing the initial attacks that happened last week. Take a listen to this. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be coming in after Jane Harmon and, and Deanna and Rami because there's a there's a thread here that yeah. I think is very important for our viewers. And that has to do with narrative. And the narrative is something that's very important when Americans are watching this conflict and saying, like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why is there no peace? And part of that has to do with um, the way that the conflict is described back here. How do we internalize this conflict? Look. I just want to say something about Jane in the airport, which is true. There was a moment when the, the Oslo Accords, and we're celebrating the 30 or 40 years of whatever that, 1993, my math sucks, 30 years of Oslo just this past um, August. Um, the airport was destroyed in 2001. That, that, that's before disengagement. Disengagement was in 2005. So there was a period where even within the framework of Oslo, before Hamas even arrived on the scene as this kind of like major authority that is going to become blockaded and, and go into direct conflict with Israel, Israel was bombing the airport and destroying it. So it's not that... The, it's not that there was a moment of peace that Ariel Sharon, who recognized that, oh, I'm going to give back Gaza to the Palestinians and they can make it the Singapore, the Singapore of the Middle East. That, that is not an accurate narrative of what happened on the ground. There was a removal of settlements. There wasn't an ending of the occupation. There was a disengagement. There was a removal of the Israeli military inside Gaza. But as Palestinians describe it, it's you're moving the prison guards from inside the prison to, outside. to the outside right. walls. You haven't given them their freedom. They couldn't freely trade. The World Bank wrote about this. They said, if there is no framework for the economic viability of Gaza, you are not going to have the Singapore of the Middle East. Right. They've got so, a whole lot of people with a lot of education because they've got universities and their, their unemployment rate is higher than anywhere else in the world because nobody can get absolutely. work. The most important word to understand in disengagement was it was unilateral. It was a unilateral disengagement. But it was just simply to do what has happened in the past with other peace treaties, which is this sense that you can have an absence of violence, meaning peace. That's not the case. And I think what we have learned from history is, and as Martin Luther King has said, you know, the absence of violence is not peace. It's the presence of justice. And to go back to Diana and Rami's point is that if you do not have some kind of mechanism that delivers justice for Palestinians, you're never going to have peace in the region. So just to give you an example of 
some of the stuff that Eamon mentioned there uh, as he was doing, like I said, a, a segment with Ali's Saturday show that, again, the three of them were not, you know, on air, at least doing the hosting duties of their regular show as reported by some of these other outlets. And I want to give a second to this, Nick, because I posted this on our IG uh, social media feed. Um, and and again, I, I know this now as somebody who's done contribution work on television and obviously behind the scenes have worked in news as well. And I know that the climate of when a story like this happens, specifically war, some type of disaster, anything like that, it's going to consume coverage. You're going to cease using your contributors, for example, like me, uh, and all these panels that you do analyzing DC politics go out the window. Everything now is devoted to getting journalists on the ground out there that are covering this or subject matter experts that can speak about the conflict. Eamon is a perfect example of that as somebody who has covered it and is also American Egyptian. Um, Mehdi, like I mentioned before with Al, Al Jazeera, Ali Velshi has been to the region so many different times covering this for MSNBC. Their voices are critical. And we, I know you're going to get potentially into the representation part of this, but on the surface, this looks terrible. This looks absolutely terrible to remove three of your anchors out there who are not pro Hamas. Let's get that out of the way. That New York Post editorial board piece is disgusting and should be vilified. There is no way on this green earth that those three guys are in support of a terrorist organization that has killed 1,400 innocent Israelis over the past uh, few days of this conflict. There is in no way, shape, or form that they believe that. Give me a freaking break, okay? It's a shame on the New York Post editorial board for writing that. But by contrast, and again, not equating the two of them, Shame on MSNBC for taking these guys off of their regular hosting duties and taking their senior producers, executive producers, everybody who goes into making that show and making sure that they book guests on that show that can be interviewed and add perspective and context to talk about the region, the conflict, and then the strategy around what the Israeli and the IDF forces are doing right now, and also the humanitarian part of this and what is happening in Gaza to try to get citizens out. All of the people that go into preparing those shows, as somebody who has worked for one of these networks and has prepared a show, shame on MSNBC for removing these folks from their hosting duties and allowing them the platform to be able to speak to thousands of other people that don't get their news that don't get their news from social media or other outlets. They get it from the traditional place of putting on MSNBC at 8 p.m., 9 p.m. on a Sunday night because they trust those people that they're watching on a weekly basis. And it's a shame that the powers that be up above don't come out with a statement and say, yeah, our bad. We took off these voices because we were getting internal pressure from Jonathan Greenblatt and, and the ADL, whoever it was that was out here saying that we, we are supporting Hamas and nowhere are we supporting Hamas. They're a terrorist organization. It, it's, it's shameful that MSNBC took these folks off of the airwaves and, and did not allow them to continue with their show and give the people the information and perspective around this conflict as folks who have covered it on the ground. Like I mentioned with Eamon, and Ali, and, and to a lesser extent, Mehdi. And by the way, uh, Mehdi, I don't want to shortchange you, buddy, but I don't, I don't even know if you have covered the conflict from on the ground. I know you've covered it in other ways. Nick, what was some of your impressions of when I sent you this article about MSNBC taking these folks off 
Um, what were just some of your your initial reactions and takeaways about this? You know, I think prior to doing this show, I, I would have been more likely to have seen that smoke and and thought there's a fire going on. Uh, I think I've been around you too much because, you know, I tried to be more analytical when I saw that. And it's hard to ignore the coincidence in that moment because it seems strange. Um, a lot of this reporting originally, you know, one of the sources that broke this was the online publication Semaphore. And uh, I think Max Tani, I think, had been one of the reporters putting this out there. And one of the things that adds a layer of complexity to this, and this was in the story, too, was that while these guests, while the, the three men you mentioned, you know, their shows were just basically sidelined, still appeared on the network. And it's odd because, you know, the key for these three gentlemen is that they have, you know, their regular spots. And to your point, you know, as a viewer, knowing that, well, you know, I want to go watch Medi's show. I go I want to go watch Eamon's show. I want to hear those who have who have ties, who have done the work, who have understood the history of conflict in that region to talk about this. If there is a perception that these voices would lend sympathy to Hamas, that's simply wrong. Um, the comment from the representative from the ADL about is Hamas, is Hamas, you know, writing your bylines or notes, whatever he said, you know, should have been questioned because it's flatly wrong, and it's a symptomatic. It's symptomatic of of the larger thing that's going on here, which is the inability to keep two things in your mind at the same time as an analyst, or at least a perception that some people can, which is a terrorist attack occurred. Hamas's mission is the eradication of Israel. And at the same time, understanding that the history of Gaza is something that we need to, to truly understand and make sense of, because in many ways, Israel is at fault. You can have both of those sentiments in your mind at the same time and recognize that what just happened was a strike by Hamas. And what would follow is Israel's logical reaction. And it seemed at MSNBC that anyone that tried to articulate what I just said was viewed as viewed as potentially a voice that the network did not want to display. Again, there's a lot of conjecture here. Tani's reporting indicates that there were internal dialogues in MSB and MSNBC, but there's no smoking gun. The only thing we can go off of is that very oddly, three of the more prominent faces at the network suddenly disappeared in the midst of this conflict. And as, as you played that clip a moment ago, Mike, the legacy of these voices is to bring up some of the conversations I don't think we necessarily want to have. Eamon's point about what's going on in Gaza and the airport, all of it is worth talking about. Does it justify? Of course, what just happened? No. And that wasn't the point. But there seems to be a perception that I think some folks at the network may have had. As far as the post, you know, writing an editorial, listen, it's it's 
it's owned by Rupert Murdoch, who's now stepping away from these operations at News Corp. Of course, they're going to use this as an opportunity to go after the competition. Like you're rightfully outraged by by this as a media junkie. I look at this as this is this is just this is just the game being itself. Of course, they're wrong. I of course am also nervous too because in this moment, the network may have just looked at three brown faces and said that we don't think your views are in line with what as a network we represent that's obviously not a violation of the first amendment many people foolishly sometimes think it is it's not this is a private company but as a company with the word news in your title or the business that you're in what happened is feels like a violation of the ethics of journalism to take voices off because you don't feel they represent a perspective that you have as a network. And that's the question I would have is what was the view at that time of MSNBC? Did it immediately look at everything and just say, well, we must put forward a message that is leaning toward being sympathetic to Israel. Uh, It's not a news junkie anymore. It's now look three years ago when you and I started this show, You know, I had worked in news before I had worked in sports production. I had the background three years later and a bunch of TV appearances, of course. And I have been on MSNBC a few times on Eamon's program. So I happen to know him personally. So I'm this is a little bit personal to me because, you know, again, you mentioned it. It's not a it's not it's not a constitutional right for Eamon Mohideen to be on Saturdays at 8 p.m. on MSNBC, nor Mehdi Hassan at 8 p.m. on Sundays. It's not it's not in there. We checked. Um, but it speaks poorly to a network, like you just said, that wants to be taken serious and say, this is news. Here's your news anchor. And then all of a sudden, mysteriously, the three voices, like you mentioned, of people that are the shade of color that you and I are not being on air. That is a terrible look regardless. And and by the way, I wanted to play the full clip of what Eamon had originally said on one of these segments. So people can kind of get context and background here to dispel a, the New York post editorial board, nonsensical article that was written and B. So you can really hear like, there's no support for Hamas in there. There's, there's none of this nonsensical buzzwords or phrases or anything like that, that shows this stance of I am pro terrorism. No, there's an explainer there of what is happening with everyday Palestinians that live in that region. That's what he was explaining at. That's what he gets to. That's where his subject matter expertise lies as somebody who is of Egyptian descent. Um, One thing I did want to note real quick before we go to the break, let me get your quick takes on this, Nick. And I'll give you my takes as well, because uh, as we're recording this, Representative Jared Jared Moskowitz, a, a Democrat here, from uh, my state in Florida, just uh, about 20 miles north of me, he tweeted out something about the House Speaker race right now. Uh, if if you have been keeping up with that, Representative Steve Scalise drew his name back. Representative Jim Jordan is trying to garner support internally to potentially get the 217, 218 threshold there to, to be able to be the next House Speaker. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, but there is going to be a vote this week. And Representative Moskowitz said he thinks Representative Jim Jordan's going to win the speakership because he thinks moderate Republicans that are part of the GOP caucus are going to uh, at least be swayed and vote for Jordan just to wrap this up. It may take, you know, as many rounds as it took to nominate McCarthy, 
Why are we talking about this? Because right now uh, the house is frozen. So any aid packages that are going to Israel, uh, something that President Biden has said is an urgent priority, all of that is frozen right now until they can unite behind a speaker. And again, as of this recording, he doesn't have the votes. There's about 55 or so Republicans that have gone on the record that say they would oppose Jim Jordan if it came up on the floor for a House vote. Now, I'll get your takes, Nick, but my take is, and I thought this two weeks ago when this happened to Kevin McCarthy, and again, this is my uh, 560 on the math portion of my SATs portion spinning here in my head, so you can kind of hear the the numbers crunching, but Democrats have 212 votes. It's easier to convince six people to do something and you'll appease them so you can get to 218 and Hakeem Jeffries is your next speaker versus getting 217 people to vote for a Jim Jordan. When I just mentioned right there, 55 of them already said, no way, I'm not crazy about him. I don't like him, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of the House Speaker race as it's entering now close to its third week, I believe, without a speaker and some of these things that are frozen right now until we get a speaker elected? If I took... I actually, I may have said this on the show. I'm not going to repeat this, but um, it's embarrassing who the Republicans have put out there. I'm st- I, 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 I'm stunned, legitimately stunned that Steve Scalise, who these two men haven't asked about the legitimacy of the 2020 election and couldn't give a straight answer. Folks, it's not hard. If that's something you can't agree to, that the election was legitimately executed and those results are legitimate, then you have no business, not just being Speaker of the House, being a member of Congress. And by what I just said, I would end up throwing out a fair amount of people in the House Freedom Caucus, obviously. Jim Jordan's embarrassment. Uh, I won't bring it up here, but I would suggest you all look up Jim Jordan, Ohio State, and the allegations that have been levied against the colleagues of his and his reticence to do the right thing. And I'll leave it there. Um, had that been associated with a Democrat, they probably would be the subject right now of a Republican-led House of, a, of an investigation. Jim Jordan is not a good man. There are good Republicans. I know I sometimes get hit with the, um, you know, the liberal label. There are some legitimate Republicans who would have been far, far better leaders. And we're not hearing from them. And for some weird reason, they're not the ones being put up right now. It's a, it's, it's a sad indictment. And you're right. I mean, as I'm looking at these news stories right now, there is, there's the ability to shore up opposition to make sure Jim Jordan becomes the Speaker of the House. And that's, a, that's a, just a damn embarrassment. I agree. Uh, it's t- that's terrible. The, the, the Jim Jordan could be up for the highest. Uh, the number three spot in our country right now um, is is beyond shocking. We're going to get into that with a, a political reporter that's going to be uh, covering that. As more news unfolds about that, we'll be covering that. Uh, I want to toss to the break here because when we come back after the break, we had a fantastic conversation. Speaking of somebody that's running for high office in the land, uh, GOP presidential hopeful and uh, businessman Ryan Binkley joined us. A fantastic conversation, a bunch policy-wise that we get into with him, his latest polling numbers, binkley2024.com. If you want to find out more about Ryan, our conversation with Ryan Binkley when we come back after the break. Hold up. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Better Sleep, a personalized sleep experience for more restful nights and wakeful days. Nick, how's your sleeping habits, buddy? I know you got two kids. You wake up early. You go to sleep late, probably. Take me through. Are you are you sleeping better? Do you need help getting to sleep? What's, what's, what's your big uh, issue and hang up here as you're trying to fall asleep at night? My quality sleep. I, I tend to, I tend to go to sleep late. You know, I, I love to read, and but inevitably I do have to get up early. So I'm averaging probably maybe like five hours of what I would consider like quality sleep. So, yeah, I'm. I was excited you mentioned this partnership because, you know, one of the things about Better Sleep that's awesome is the fact that the entire sleep experience is what they focus on. Everything from sounds to help you sleep, you know, better understanding your sleep patterns. And Mike, that's that's really the breakdown that they offer. Super easy app to use. Um, I can't brag enough about it. I'm starting to use it myself just to really just better understand how I sleep and how I can improve that because it's we take it for granted, but almost any athlete will tell you, any professional will tell you, our understanding of sleep is coming to the forefront of what really helps to improve performance. So I'm, I'm all for it. No, you're right. Anybody will tell you, you need your eight hours at least. Improve your well-being in just one week. If you go to the link right now in our show notes, it's going to take you over to better sleep. And you can take the quiz. They have a take the quiz button that's available right there as soon as you come into the app. So that way it can adjust the sounds and everything you need to get a better quality sleep. Click the link in our show notes right now and head to bettersleep.com for a restful night's sleep. This episode is presented by our friends, our good friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. The coffee that's keeping me awake when Nick Savary is putting me to sleep with one of his trains of thought. Are you, you give me a look here, Nick. Uh, give me a little bit of how fresh roasted coffee keeps you awake when I'm boring you with some of my trains of thought. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Interesting introduction. Folks, I'm a huge fan, as you all know, of fresh roasted coffee, primarily for the simple fact about diversity. If you're a tea person, they've got you covered. If you're a coffee person, they got you covered too. Mike and I take our coffee very differently. Mike is a Keurig man that is efficient, that is tasty, that's the way to go. I am a French press person. Nowadays, I actually grind my own beans. So when I get my batch of fresh roasted coffee, it goes right into the grinder, then to the French press, boiled water, let's go. But in either case, our cup of coffee comes out delicious, mostly because they ask you at the jump, what's just tell us about you simple quiz they'll direct you to the bean or brand that you you should be getting in touch with and that's the way to go and then they just produce 
an incredible cup of coffee, again, regardless of how you do it. No, that's exactly right. You can take the quiz over at freshroastedcoffee.com. And in the show notes page right now of this episode, hit the link for a discount or enter in the promo code after you've taken the quiz, after you've selected the coffee you're going to order, enter in the promo code. Can we please get 20 for 20% off your first purchase? I'm telling you, this coffee is delicious. Go to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, gracious enough to give us a couple minutes here is GOP presidential candidate and, and CEO, Ryan Binkley. Ryan, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you today. Uh, welcome from New Hampshire. We're here at the First in the Nation uh, big meeting they're having here for the Republican Party. So it's great to be with you as well. No, it's great to have you, Ryan. And, you know, there's a lot to get into uh, with not only your candidacy, your platform, uh, what you guys are, are standing for and some of the policy stuff that you've put over on Binkley2024.com so folks can go check it out. We're going to get into some of that in a second. I was telling you this off air first at the top. I just kind of want to get your takeaways as other candidates have been asked to assess what happened in Israel with the terrorist attacks by by Hamas. And now, obviously, all the airstrikes and attacks that are happening in Gaza, the entire situation overall. I know you and your team have posted some stuff recently on your Twitter handle about, you know, kind of assessing the situation going over it. But I would just love for our audience over here for you to kind of give your takeaways about the situation and the region overall. Well, definitely one of the most difficult days in that region's uh, history uh, in the last 50 years or so. You know, it's been, I think, 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. And that on that anniversary, um, Hamas and many of their insurgents and just terrorists just decided to attack Israel unprovoked um, in a large sense, and so unaware that it was going to happen. Israel was caught off guard, which was a big surprise. I think there's a time to kind of reflect back later and, and kind of figure out what happened at a later time. But right now, in the middle of a war uh, that they've declared against Hamas, and one of the most difficult stories I think we've all heard and seen, uh, some of the horrific acts of violence that have come out of there. So now our just hearts are hurting for so many people. And um, my prayer is that Obviously, that Israel be able to protect their people, protect their nation. At the same time, try and bring a <clears throat> this this unrest to an end while also creating some sort of uh, plan for the Palestinians as well that they could have those that are not a part of Hamas, you know, could have some sort of you know shelter in place so they can be as safe as possible as well. That's going to be the delicate balance uh, that they have to fight through. Ryan, with that in mind, just as you mentioned that. Do you position yourself as someone who advocates for the two-state solution? No, not at all. You know, I really believe that Israel is its own nation. Uh, God really created that nation. And of course, you know, obviously 70, what, 70 some odd years ago, they got their nation back. At this point in time, you know, they're they're 1% of that whole region. I mean, if you look at the geography that the Israelites have, it's a very, very small portion Understand that there's a lot of conflict there. It's been there for thousands of years, but they have this one little area and a lot of other neighboring nations don't want them there. So at the end of the day, many of them have vowed, you know, to destroy them as well as America. So, you know, they're in a place that's very difficult. Um, I don't think a two state solution would work. Um, anytime it seems like they are giving some inroads to that or they haven't last 20 or 30 years, it's ended with things like we see today, you know, where they have their own little governments coming around and, and boom, they're, they're trying to destroy Israel. So I personally don't think that's a solution. Let's just broaden out to your platform in general. 
you know, right now the party is in this in, in this place where your most recent nominee steps down to be House Speaker. Kevin McCarthy, obviously not the House Speaker. In the role as president, obviously you would be leader of the Republican Party. How do you position yourself to try to bring together a party that historically usually tends to be more unified than the Democrats, but is not in that place right now? What do you get to offer to, to better position the party to be more unified? Well, you know, that's a great question. You know, first of all, we've got to we've got to unify our party before we can win an election. And then to win an election, you're going to have to unify the country with a different message as well. So these are both messages that our party leaders don't have today. I mean, President Trump did a lot of good things, but he's not known as being a uniter. I don't think that's his uh, you know, qualifying characteristic about him. So there is a lot of good things he did, but at the end of the day, we have to unite our party. It is really divided. I think we're, we've seen, even when, with McCarthy getting in, took, what, 15 votes for him to get there. Who knows when we'll have a speaker? I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have one for a long period of time. Hopefully that will change. This is going to take a wake-up call for the Republican Party to go, listen, let's quit embarrassing ourselves. Let's actually just elect a speaker. Let's put our party first before individual um, choice. At the end of the day, this is what I'll be doing as president, asking both parties to put our country first. You know, right now, the division is so strong in America that each party is really more intent on seeing the other party fail as opposed to seeing America succeed. So, we have to start with our party, then carry that message to the country. I think when we do, we'll be able to solve real problems like our budget, health care, the border, education, and then we'll lead strong internationally. Well, let's get into some of those things because you've had per- perfectly into the follow up there. And like I said, folks, go check out Binkley2024.com because you've outlined a couple of different things. Policy-wise, a seven-year economic rescue plan, uh, your border security and dignity plan, which I want to get with in, uh, into with you in a second. But give our audience a little bit of your platform, what it is that you are running on, some of the promises that you're making across the, to the different voters now in Iowa and New Hampshire. Tell us a little bit about Ryan Brinkley and what his uh, presidency would look like. Well, Mike, this is the biggest thing that we have to understand as a country. And as president, I'm going to have to look right in the camera to the American people and really tell them the reality of the financial condition of our country. You know, right now, no president in recent history in the last 20 or 30 years has really spoken to America about the trends we're on. And really what we're at right now, I would just call it a tipping point. I mean, we are proud to flip over into what I, a perfect storm financially that is really not only going to hurt hurt our country economically, but I think likely set the next generation up, my kids, your kids, our grandkids of the future with probably the weakest economic foundation since the Great Depression. And here's why. We have $32 trillion in debt. That's bad. But the worst part is no way out. We're going $2 trillion in debt every year, probably going to be $50 trillion in eight years. But what comes with that is a 15 to 20% interest payment every year. We don't have a dime to pay that interest payment. So we have to borrow money from others and ourselves, in essence, print money to make interest payments. So this makes about as much sense as getting a third credit card to make your minimum interest payments. That's what we're doing. And when we do this, this is what causes inflation. So I've got to kind of teach macroeconomics a little bit to America. Most people don't know this, even how much debt we have, much less the consequences of it. So this money supply problem is my background and, and expertise as, kind of as an economist. I'm a CEO of an investment bank. I've seen this for 20 years plus. We teach middle market companies and how to gauge markets and the cost of capital and what it means to the value of their company. We've done that forever. Now it's time for us to look holistically as a country and put together a plan 
So we've got to make some prudent cuts. Now, I, you can't do that without transforming healthcare. We can talk about that in a second. But we've got to not just get rid of some wasteful spending, but we have to all of it. Social Security's broken. I mean, I, I'm 55. It's going to be 78 cents on the dollar in eight years. We have to tell everybody that. We've got to tell people that Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare are eating away our country. It's about 35% of our overall budget. We have to fix that because it has inflation risers into it. So a big part of our plan is we have to make decisions together. This is going to take leadership, though, because I cannot vilify the Democrats on Friday and say, come work with me on the budget on Monday. We're going to have to transcend our party. We're going to have to pull a Ronald Reagan back in 84 and you know win some other people to this consensus that we're in, we're in a state of emergency financially. And if we don't fix it, we're in deep trouble. Ryan, obviously, you come from the standpoint of, of being one in the business field. You just mentioned being a CEO. From a labor standpoint, this year and the previous year, we've seen an uptick in unionization. You know, We're seeing labor trying to further bond. Most recently, we have the auto worker strike, the writer strike, the actor strike. Labor is having a moment right now in this country. You know, in your position, if you were to win the presidency, how do you bridge that? How do you establish that marriage between having a sound labor force, a protected labor force, but also ensuring that people in this country want to have their own businesses and those businesses can thrive? So a delicate balance at the end of the day that right now, I understand why they're striking. The reason they're striking is because Republican presidents and Democrat presidents presidents have spent us into oblivion. And at the end of the day, this type of spending is what's caused the inflation towards leaving them struggling. So the auto workers, I get it. At the end of the day, they're facing 30% higher rent, 30% higher food, gas, anything related to the car, 25, 30% more. You know, this CPI basket of goods is not a real indicator because that takes about 100 goods. But the main things we purchase, it's a lot more than that. So they're struggling. I can see why they look at the books of all the auto industry, which, by the way, has been bailed out by the government the last few years and go, wow, they're making money, so we should more too. But the reality is my message to them is I understand they get back to work. Uh, they offered you 20%. I didn't see a counter at 30 or 28. If you're still holding out for 40, that's a mistake. We could fall off a financial cliff in the next year if we're not careful. Be a part of the solution. Get back to the table. Work hard on a, a negotiating agreement, but get it done. Uh, the last thing we need doing is have another yellow trucking company thing happen. As you may know, remember yellow trucking 30,000 employees, they're gone today. They're no longer in existence today because they couldn't work it out. So let's don't just act like the government's always going to be there to bail out the auto industry. In fact, we need to get out of business in that regard, but we need to tell everybody, get back to work, take a 25% raise, do something, get it done. That's my message. I, I empathize, but at the same time, there's no guarantee of the future. So let's 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 figure out the real problem. The real problem is bad spending habits. The real problem is trying to buy votes with our children's future. Whenever the Biden is taking off credit card, excuse me, um, tuition debt, you know, to the hundreds of billions of dollars, I've talked to college students. I've said, listen, this is the worst thing that could happen to you. Here's why. They all want it right away until I tell them the consequences. The consequences in 10 to 15 years, you know, your interest payments on your house are going to be 12%. You're not going to be able to afford to buy one. So let's get a hold of this and understand the real picture. And have, over time, people see it and they're willing to make a a sound decision that's pay off their own debt. And I think that's where we have to get to get back to wisdom. You know, Ryan, one of the things I've appreciated about you so far, just in this interview and meeting you has 
you've been able to articulate a, a bunch of what your policy visions are. And you're talking to two kids, uh, children of, of immigrants here. And one of the things I appreciated about was you guys laid out this 13 point plan, this border security and dignity plan that I would love for you to kind of take our audience inside of because a lot is covered in there with respect to what DHS would do, uh, how there would be some protections for dreamers. Can you take our audience a little bit inside what your border security plan and dignity plan kind of entails, and then also assessing what is happening at our nation's border. It's so polarized right now. I mean, the numbers of folks that are encountered have gone up year over year since the 2020 uh, COVID-19 and, and all the Title Eight stuff and the remaining Mexico policies, just your overall assessment of the border and then kind of what your plan attacks. Well, this plan is, is really... I think a central piece of our of our plan to really unify our country, because when I talk about unifying our country, I would be you know foolish to think that we could do that without giving us something to unify on. So we can talk about healthcare, the budget, meaning even the border. These are not Republican or Democratic issues; these are American issues. And what I mean is this: when there are we're literally a hundred thousand people likely to die, young people of fentanyl this year. They're not just picking out Republicans that are going to die or Democrats. These are young people. These are future leaders of our country. And right now, the Democrats and Republicans are at a standoff. I kind of call it like at the OK Corral. You know, Democrats want some sort of work registration, <laughs> you know, for immigrants. Republicans want a secure border. And it's like the two shall never meet. I've been telling people in Iowa and New Hampshire, everywhere I go, listen, how many people have to die every day before we're willing to come together and work? Right now, 300 people are dying a day. That's not enough. So what's the number? Is it 500? Is it 1,000? Before we wake up and go, wow, let's work together because it's going to take that. So I recognize the issues. We need to secure our border. We have to stop the drugs coming in. We have to stop the human trafficking. Uh, we have to stop the illegal immigration. This is, this is so clear. Uh, let's quit playing political games with it. But it's going to take money to do that. So Congress holds the power of the purse. So what's it going to take to get $30 billion? Well, it's going to take negotiating. It's going to take us understanding that we also have a work registration problem here in America. We have a we have a population shortage for workers. Uh, not seeing that is just choosing to ignore reality. Uh, when you, I live in southwest part of the United States. Anybody doing construction, landscaping, uh, up in Iowa, farming, all over agriculture, hard jobs, difficult jobs are often done by immigrants from other countries. Some came here illegally. Now, if they came here illegally, our plan is this. It's either like if you and I committed a crime, you either go to jail, or you pay a fine. There's a significant fine if we want them to work here. But if we don't want them to work here, if they've committed a crime, then obviously they have to go. We, my plan gets rid of catch and release. It gets rid of sanctuary cities because it actually requires E-Verify for every company, even if you have two employees. Because certain plans like the one they have in Florida, it, it gives loopholes in it for, for companies with 25 employees or smaller. So a lot of people can hide. At the end of the day, we need to quit that, quit the politics, quit the games, and actually just provide a worker solution for the people that have been here the longest and get back to leading on immigration. This is my main point to the Republican Party. We've never led on immigration. We have never led on health care. Let's lead again. Let's quit leaving the discussion to somebody else because you know, 40% of our country are, are people of color. We need to connect to them. We have to recognize what the real needs are and come up with real solutions. My Security and Dignity Act closes the border from California to Texas, and it gets it done. Ryan, this feels like a debate, doesn't it? Because I'm about to ask about education right here on this panel. And, this yeah, but we are, we are grateful for you for that reason. Um, 
you know, obviously education right now comes up often at the local level. We're seeing schools or individuals, you know, recommending books not being available to some children. Um, we've seen questions about the role of parents furthermore in the classroom and then the education of their children. We've seen uh, people openly question the purpose of the Department of Education. Upon winning the presidency, what is your view, A, for the Department of Education? What is its what is your vision for that role at a federal level? But then also, you've talked about the need for education to be an opportunity to address some of the challenges in this country. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So this is the most important thing we're facing, I think, for the next generation as well, is, is how are we going to help lift people out of poverty? You know, right now, education is, is the answer. Now, it's not just vocation, excuse me, it's not just college education, it's also vocational training, uh, trade schools again. We've gotten away from this in America. You know, one state that does it well is Iowa. I've been there a lot. They have trade schools for welders and for craftsmen. And people are making good money, can make 60, 70, 80,000 dollars a year, the first or second year. But you know what we've done as a nation is we've not honored that as a real education. We've kind of viewed that as a tier two type job. We need to get away from that and either prepare kids for college or a career, start teaching them how to get ready for life and actually have a living wage that could support a family. So, you know, recognize the problems we have. First of all, we have to see our education is horrible. You know, uh, at the end of the day, when you look at us compared to other leading nations, we're not in the top 20, I think. And when it comes to reading, writing and math, we have to get back to the basics. Now, the Department of Education has got the wrong priorities. It's got the wrong leaders in it. Um, I would get back to the basics and I would measure performance based on results. We have probably in the bigger cities of our country, you know, one out of six minorities reading with proficiency at the eighth grade reading level. Across the country, regardless of race, it's only like 30, 35% is reading proficiently and doing math proficiently and even less than that. That's horrible. We are, we're not preparing our kids for the global stage. So we have to get measuring results. We have to, if we're going to give away money, it's got to have the right results to it. We have to get politics out of the Department of Education. So what I would do is I put a leader in there that valued education. We're going to get sex education basically out. I want parents involved. This is nothing that needs to be left where parents are not involved. And so there, we talk about some difficult issues. I, 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 you know, I don't mind at a certain age there being certain things taught, but some of the things we've seen, some of the books we've written, those just don't need to be there. If we want them as an option for parents to go over with their kids, that's fine. But at the end of the day, let's get back to teaching math. Let's get back to teaching reading and writing, get back to the basics. And one of the things that I think we can do also to help with this is to start a volunteer movement um, with college students. I really see a vision where, you know, college students are giving five hours a week to help mentor third through the fifth graders on how to read. Because if we don't get them reading proficiently by the third grade, there are people that do stats and studies and show how to prepare and increase prison sizes 20 and 30 years from now, because based on these stats. And so the reality is, is we have to really teach people to read. I want to ask college students, would you help a young person? Would you change their life? Would you give some time to them? You could be a hero for them. It'll change their life. It'll change yours as well. And I think change the culture of our country. So those are a few things that I would do. Get leadership in the Department of Education, actually hold them accountable to real results and uh, let's influence some of the states like California, New York, that Republicans don't have any influence in at all. I don't want to leave California to, do, to, to raise up their own group of kids with their own agenda. We need to have a set of standards in America that says this is what a high school diploma looks like. <laughs> Here's the actual results you need to achieve that and hold everybody accountable to that. 
Well, Ryan, as a former college student, uh, I, I agree and I applaud that people should be doing work like that. Tougher to get a college kid to do that. But I, I actually applaud that sentiment, doing some volunteer work, because you do feel better afterwards and you're paying it forward. Right. So I totally agree with that sentiment. I, I did want to ask they're you. They're getting ready. They're getting yeah, ready for it. I mean, it's true. They are. Um, I, I do want to ask you uh, a question. And I got asked this recently on a Fox News panel. After the first debates and Nikki Haley's response to Martha McCallum's question about the abortion issue and women's reproductive rights, right? And it's really not abortion. It's more of women's reproductive rights. And I thought Nikki Haley gave a great answer in terms of humanizing this. But this is something that has played out that my co-host and I have talked about on this show, women's reproductive rights. The GOP has been getting hammered at the ballot box and in different initiatives that have taken place in Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Kansas, where they have lost and women have come out in full force saying they want access to whether it be, you know, a contraception or different things in terms of controlling their own body. Where do you stand on all of this and how do you message around the Republican Party right now with how to treat women's reproductive rights and messaging to people that you're trying to garner votes for if you eventually become the nominee and, and are trying to swing independence and the more conservative Democrats your way? Well, right now, this is in the, in the state's hands, right? And so as we recognize when Roe v. Wade was overturned, which was the right thing to do, in my opinion, I am pro-life, but I see the plight of young women. I see the difficulty with an unplanned pregnancy. And I want to be, as a president, a leader to help change the culture of life, but also change the culture of care. You know, one of the reputations Republicans have, whether it be for the poor, the immigrant, or a young woman in a moment of crisis in an unplanned pregnancy, is that we're not really known to really be, wow, we are the caring party. You know, we're the one in here diving into, you know, difficult issues. So I think we can change the narrative on all these things because many people do care. It's just that our party hasn't been that reflective of that. So what do we have to do? At the end of the day, this is this is difficult. Um, there are people that truly have deeply held beliefs on both sides of this. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, nobody's heart was overturned. Nobody changed their mind overnight. Oh, wow, I'm pro-life now. Or I can see that I'm pro-choice. So this has taken some time for dust to settle. What I will try and do now as president is lead us into a new era where we are showing care and love. For a young woman in a time of crisis, many of them don't have a parent there, a husband there, a father there, even a friend there in that time. How can we help educate them early on? One, that abortion is not contraception. There is a difference. We need to educate them on what contraception is. We need to educate men and women on the consequences of sex outside of marriage. There is consequences. Sometimes they're unintended. What are they? And how are you going to be prepared and responsible for that? But also show them that they can have some economic security, that we can do some more things to help them. Calling on churches, charities, individuals, organizations to help make sure that is never a reason that there should never be a financial reason why a woman chooses to have an abortion because there should be money and help available. And I think a good percentage of them happen for that reason. This is hard, um, but I think if we can do that, start a culture of a life with adoption, helping make adoption more affordable and easier, uh, it's very expensive, and also change the narrative with foster care. I mean, can we do more? Many kids that are 10 years old or older, they don't get to have a chance at a at a parent, you know, to have parents as far as being adoptive parents. And we need to change that too, because many kids that age out with foster care, they end up going through a very difficult path in life. And so how do we how do we see this whole big picture as a way I would try and lead? And hopefully over time, with a, a shift in the culture of life, more people would would come to grips with this. I think some of the things we saw at the ballot box, it's first time reaction. 
I think as we lead through this, those those emotions will will come down a bit. But I think we can lead with a better culture of leadership of life. Ryan, stepping away from from policy for a moment, you're a candidate running for office. You're on the road. What's what's life have been like for you as as a candidate? Is it comparable to anything you've done in the business world, your personal life? Yeah, it's hard. No question. So, you know, I've got five kids, um, age 13 to 23. My oldest three, you know, my oldest son just graduated college. He's working in, at our business and getting his MBA. Um, my two other daughters are in college, so it's not a, as big as impact on them. The bigger impact was on my seventh grader and 10th grader. Uh, my son is a sophomore. He's, you know, one plays football, the other plays golf. And, you know, we're I'm there with them in both those things. And it's harder. So I've missed half the JV football games this year. Uh, that's been that's been hard. I'm getting films of games last night, and, you know, for my wife, and I'm commenting back to my son and texting him today, seeing how he's doing. So that's the most difficult part. Um, you know, my kid, my son was with me um, about a few weeks ago. He said he recognizing the cost of all this, that you know, and even in our friendship, I mean, we're close. And so he goes, Dad, I know this is something real important to you. You just better win. You just better win, Dad. And I said, Okay, son, I'll make sure. I'll make sure I do. So no added pressure there. But it is hard. But, you know, I feel called to do it. You know, I wouldn't be doing this. I'm not doing this because, wow, I'm just really ambitious and I see problems and I think I am I can really have an answer. You know, I would not have ventured in this if I didn't feel called to. I, I really had this impressed upon my heart about eight years ago. Um, and in a way, it came to me, I believe, from the Lord. And so I'm kind of walking this out because I feel like God has a, a, a word for our country. And the word is that we have to end the division that there's something coming we're not prepared for that. I don't know what's happening, you know, Nick, that's coming, but we're not ready for another COVID. We're not ready for, to confront a, a war in our, with Iran or Russia or China and, and uh, coming out of the crisis we're in the culture crisis. We, our own party can't even let the house speaker. We're not ready for some of the things we're facing. If the, the economy collapses or goes down to another level deep, it's going to take um, a God moment leadership to bring us together. And I feel called to speak to that. So I feel called that, you know, as, as Lincoln said, you know, a house divided cannot stand. If we can unify our country, we can get this on track. And so that's why I'm making the sacrifices with my family, because I, I think it's a moment where I really feel called to. Very well said there, Ryan. And before we let you go, I did want to ask you, because you were just talking about your son there for a moment, and he said, Dad, you better win. And the latest polling, right, we showed in Iowa from interactive polls, you know, you're out around 2%. And obviously, not one single vote has been cast. And I also know, uh, in the words of Governor Ron DeSantis, polls don't win elections, voters win elections, right? So in keeping with that, if let's say the numbers don't trend up or, or what have you, um, what does Ryan Binkley see for himself in 2024 as he continues this campaign, as he continues to message and do more interviews and stuff like that? But let's just say things don't work out the way you intended because you've impressed Nick and I here. And I tell you right now, I'm a primary voter in the state of Florida. You probably would have my vote. But but let's say it doesn't trend that way. What does Ryan Binkley see for himself going forward in 2024? And, and in terms of being around the Republican Party and this call, like you mentioned, that you feel you have, because I think you have a lot of good policy, vision and strategy that you could implement into this party. What, what do you see for yourself, obviously, besides potentially being the president of the United States? Well, Mike, if I can answer two, that two ways. First, first of all, there is a little bit of hope in that 2%. You know, I just saw this poll come out yesterday where we are, me and 
Nikki and Trump and Ron, we're the only, I think, four candidates that actually moved up in the last month. So somehow I moved up and I was the only candidate on this poll that wasn't in both of the debates. The rest of them didn't poll at all. So some of our message, without even me being on the debate stage either time, I was able to double my polling. And I, I, I'm there in Iowa a lot, and I'm glad that some people are responding to it. So my hope is that through more media, you know, and we were really close. We've been on a lot of some media, but once we missed that first debate, it, it really cut down. So we're kind of getting back to sharing this basic message, which is a little bit different. You know, I've got a different message for our country. So I'm, I'm, there's hope in there because I see something breaking. And, it, and if we can finish in the top three or four in Iowa, people are going to go, who is this candidate that wasn't on the debate stage and how did he get there? And let's listen to him now. So that's part of my goal. Now, if it didn't work out, uh, what would I do? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for a job now necessarily. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm also a CEO. Of, we have about 400 employees in our company. I've got five kids and I've got a golf game that needs to improve. So there's a lot of things that need to happen. But obviously, I love our country and, and whatever need I can I can express, you know, the need to unify our country, turn back to each other in this warfare we're in culturally I, and speak to the bigger problems. I've got some real answers financially and healthcare that I think can really bring us any way I can help them there. Well, as a seven handicap, I could potentially help you with that. We'll talk offline on that front, but uh, a little, I, I'm an eight. So a little, oh, a little. Okay. Okay. Very little. Okay. I give you one stroke. Okay. On the hardest hole. Uh, Binkley 2024. You can go check out the website. Ryan Binkley, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast with us. Continue success, sir. Stay on the trail. Keep at it. And you're always welcome back anytime. I appreciate it, sir. Well, well, really, thank you both. And thank you for taking the time to uh, have me on. And um, I, thanks for following us a little bit. Your listeners can follow us a little bit. Follow us on social media if you like it. You know, we put little snippets of speeches out there and just kind of share it with some friends. Or, and if, if it's something that connects you, uh, it'll help us out. Take care. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus. New energy drink sponsor on the show, Nick. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you lack focus and concentration, motivation? Do you need something to boost your stamina and strength? I do. You know, coffee coffee isn't enough, so I'm always looking for other options. Well, I got something for you, Nick, that's going to boost your stamina and strength. It's going to enhance your focus and concentration. We're going to ramp up your motivation. We're going to provide alertness and stimulation. We're going to even improve your mood, Nick, which a lot of people on this on the comments are going to be happy with. I got the original Think Drink infused with powerful nootropics, performance-boosting nutrients, Click the link in our show notes right now to get a special offer on Nerd Focus Beverages for being a Can We Please Talk listener. Nerd Focus, there's a nerd in everyone. All right, our thank yous there to Ryan Binkley. Like I mentioned, you can go to the website, binkley2024.com. Uh, if you want to go find out more information about him, he mentioned some of the polling there. Uh, I, interactive polls was the, was the Twitter handle that I was following that was giving some of the latest Iowa numbers around him. And he was polling right around the 2% neighborhood. Um, like I said, not one single vote has been cast yet. We all know that it's incredibly, it's not really early, but it's early enough where somebody like that, that's on the ground, that's out there meeting with, you know, prospective voters and stuff like that. You could, you never know the ground swelling Obama at this point in Iowa. And again, there's a book over my shoulder right now by Reggie Love, one of his former aides. And Reggie was on the show a long time ago uh, in the annals of, of, of this show's history. And he was telling us about 
Obama had almost no chance in Iowa. And it was really this grassroots campaign going door to door. Now, I'm not comparing Ryan Binkley to eventual President Barack Obama, and also Obama was a junior senator. But but I do think that there's a lot there, Nick. Uh, throughout the interview, you and I were kind of head nodding um, for people that don't know. Uh, you know, we text each other to, to kind of, you know, go follow up question who's going to go next. Give you a little bit of how the sausage is made here. And the two of us were, you know, really nodding along because there's a lot there policy wise that he just kept mentioning compromise, bipartisanship. There's no way I can criticize the Dems on Friday and then ask them to help me sign this budget on Monday. I thought that was the best line. And Tim, for our producer, Tim, you want to cut that for social. I thought that was one of the best lines out there because no other candidate has really been saying that. If you've noticed, a lot of buzzwords and phrases are being used by all these other candidates, minus maybe Chris Christie. The rest of them are all speaking about that the Democrats are vile, they're evil, you can't work with them, radical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all buzzwords and phrases, whereas he's approaching it like almost like a business. I, I got to work with people. We all have to row in the same direction so we can get upstream. What do you make of, of the interview, some of his policy stuff? Like I mentioned, Binkley2024.com if people want to check it out. But what do you make of it all? Yeah, similar to you, although I'll push back about the Chris Christie stuff because I, I think, at least on social media, he's starting to go down that road of, of being very punchy with, um, with quips and just buzzwords about the president, which I don't think really helps his cause. Anyway, but I feel like I talked to a human being today. Um, on the debate stage, and this may be just an indictment about the way these debates are or formatted, this was a conversation. You know, I joked during the interview that this <laughs> we, we, we make this sound a little like a debate in the way we're asking these questions. Obviously, it's only, only to one person, and you and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll brag about we were pretty informed for this conversation today. Not even pretty, we were. So, you know, we're going back and forth with the candidate, and I feel like I'm talking to an actual to an actual person. There are some things that we don't agree on and it's not like just this sort of it's not from a place of malice i don't feel like i'm going to get into a screaming match with this person but there's things that there's a divide between us i'm just always speaking for myself between myself and and, and ryan and i feel like in that conversation there's the, there's the beginnings of understanding and here's a person who's running for the office of president um you know when i thought about this conversation today i, I thought a lot about you know, what is it that what is it that makes someone successful in this job? We've had, you know, 45 people do this. And every one of them's had their faults and and some of their victories. Some, I mean, very few victories. But you know, what he brings in this in this conversation today is just an approachability. You know, I thought about some folks had we had them in the same format here. And I don't know if they have the same ability to relate to us at a human level. And it sounds strange to use that word but i think that's that's what's been lost here you know as we demonize the other parties and you know sometimes even our fellow candidates and what you know ryan did was just just kind of come straight up with where where he is um and openness to to want to work and talk to others and and full disclosure you know at first when i read his bio here's a person who you know has started a business you know, and I'm always leery sometimes of folks in the business sector working in public service because it's a very different universe. Um, but in his responses to my questions, I feel like this is a person who has put more thought into this and who does not necessarily view this as a CEO position, but one of more servant leadership, one about 
working and helping others. You know, would I vote for him in a primary? Probably. I, I mean, of all the candidates right now, there's only very few. And I'm not obviously a Republican voter, but I mean, he's pretty high on my list of people I would listen to. I mean, if I were to go person for person on the debate stage. Yeah, there's a lot of people that I'm putting Ryan ahead of at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I would echo that. And and by the way, I was saying this. I forget where I was saying it uh, to somebody, but about on the campaign, you can say whatever you want, right? You can make all these wild promises. We've seen elected officials do it all the time. Uh, you know, Obama, you can keep your doctor, right? You couldn't keep your doctor once it came into practice. And and the reason why is because people don't understand the way DC dynamics work, the way the legislative and executive branches work. Like there, you have to work with other people. It's a process to do things. Uh, you know, there's always the running joke of four years is not enough because one of those years you're actually campaigning to try to get reelected. The first year you're, you're coming into office, you know, your head's on a swivel all over the place doing a bunch of different things. So you really only have two years to try to get things your way. And if you don't control at least either the house or the Senate, you're, you're not able to really get things passed through as we've seen different administrations get blockaded on that. So I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm grateful that he said a lot of what he said policy-wise, dealing in the realistic nature of the way DC works. There wasn't anything there that made you scratch your head and go, that's not executable. There's no way you're going to be able to do that. A lot of what he mentioned there was really like, oh, okay, I can see somebody doing that because it's not outside of the box for a more conservative Democrat to say, you know, what? I would want to work with that side of the aisle and do that and vice versa with a moderate Republican or something like that. So we leave it right there. Binkley 2024. Like I mentioned, you want to go check out the site and click on the vision tab where it has a bunch of the stuff that Ryan and his team have kind of laid out in terms of the border security and dignity plan, his seven year economic rescue plan, transforming healthcare, which we got into a little bit with him, not too much, but go check it out there. And if you want to check out the video portion of our interview with Ryan, head over to our YouTube channel, type in, can we please talk podcast? We should pop right up and hit the subscribe button while you're there. Audio podcast platforms, you know, by now, Apple, Spotify, Google, shout out to everybody that listens to us over on Good Pods. Shout out to YouTube Music. You can download the YouTube Music app and check out our show on there and hit follow while you're there. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program each and every week. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. Mm-hmm.